Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 413. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is we have a story called You for Umbrella by Damien Angelica Waters. Then we have an interview which actually I put it back because it, it had some kind of hard con, you know hard elements to it. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. But it is just a fascinating interview with a gentleman called Vinay Gupta. And I'm calling him the Futures Disasters Specialist. Then the main fiction is Quarantine Summer by Rebecca Birch. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Don't forget this show is sponsored by Octagon Technologies. 20 years in the IT business, helping you with your little problems that to you may seem huge and by God mine do. Oh man. So a big thank you to Clive and Diane. They'll get that sorted out for you. So before one of the, the stories there, just a, a couple of things. I've got lots, lots of things to kind of go through today, so I'll just kind of start rattling them off. First up is we are open to submissions. Yes, Starship Sova is now open to submissions for stories. Now, we're only open. We're going to be open like a, probably two or three times a year. But I got a note off Jeremy there, and he says, from the 14th of December to the 14th of January, submission, submissions are now open. And one of the things, one of the things Jeremy did point out, and you know what I mean, just read the guidelines. That's all we're saying, read the guidelines, because although Jeremy said it a, a number of times, a number of people weren't reading the guidelines. And just out of curiosity as well, if you go over there, there's a little kind of button you can click, which you get our free submitting checklist if you want to kind of get on Starship Sova or get on actually any, you know, audio podcast or, you know, there's certain things you've, certain rules you've got to kind of follow. Do you know what I mean? And that'll take you on to a little newsletter that we're going to set up. And I'm going to bring in other editors, you know, and just get their views and, you know, what what they've seen. Just if anybody wants some help in submitting a story, like I say, not just to, you know, here or anywhere, you know, anywhere, Lightspeed, you know, Clark's Will, just to kind of help you out there. So pop over there, there's a there's kind of, in the submissions, if you come onto the front of the website, you'll see submissions at that top little bar there. Go in there and read the guidelines and click on there and you can get into that little that little kind of newsletter feed, which is coming on great, to be quite honest. One more thing before we get in, and I'll keep on mentioning other little things, though. We have a poll coming out. Oh, it is actually out there now. If you look on your handset there or your, your, your computer, you see a link to come and take our survey for 
moving ahead for 2016. You know, just asking some questions because I was getting to the kind of these last few weeks where I was starting to think, am I doing this right? Am I doing what, you know, do I need a tweak? Do I need? And I thought, why well, don't I just ask you? Do you know what I mean? Just like, as if it's just dawned on us, like a light. Oh, I, I, I could, I suppose I could. So there is a survey. You can come up again, you can come up with the website that's on there, but I'll put a link in as well. It's in the show notes, so you can kind of click on that and take straight away. It's only five minutes, you know what I mean? I think there's about 20 questions there, you know what I mean? So there you go. So we'll jump in, then enough of that, enough of business. We'll jump into the first of the kind of main fictions, and it is by Damien Angelica Walters. And we've, we've played one of Damien's stories before. Just fascinating. Great reaction when we, when we played this writer's work, you know what I mean? Just tremendous. Damien Angelica Waters' work has appeared or forthcoming in various anthologies and magazines, including The Year's Best Dark Fantasy and Horror, 2015, Year's Best Weird Fiction, Volume 1, The Mammoth Book of Cthulhu, New Lovecraftian Fiction, Nightmare Magazine, Black Static and Abex Magazine. She was a finalist for the Bram Stoker Award for Float- The Floating Girls, a documentary originally published in the James View Sing Me Your Scars. I love that. Man, that's just a great title, lad. A collection of short fiction which was released in 2015 from Apex Publishing. And Paper Tigers, a novel, is forthcoming in 2016 from Dark Horse Press. Find her on Twitter, and I'll put a link on there so you can go over there, and a website as well. Fantastic. Story A is narrated by Anne-Marie Chowowski. Anne-Marie is a postgraduate at Royal College of Music. She was a, re- a regular soloist at the Royal College with her fellow student Alfie Boer, who's probably got a Christmas album out, <laughs> I bet, and has sung on Channel 4 and the Royal Gala performance on ITV. She also has a teaching practice amongst her students are... Laura Mailing, who won the 2012 British Female Solo Artist at the Brit Awards. Comedian Lenny Henry and the UK Classic Chart Number 1, Rebecca Newman. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. You is for Umbrella by Damien Angelica Walters. Motherhood. All love begins and ends there. Robert Browning. Fourteen days until impact. I can't stop watching the clock. It's stupid, I know. Nothing's going to happen tonight, but still I find my eyes drawn to the clock again and again. I'm trying to keep a brave face for Millie, trying to pretend everything is fine and normal, but she knows something is wrong. She may only be five, but she's far from stupid. Does it make me cruel? Does it make me a bad mother to want to make these last weeks for Millie something close to normal? Something peaceful? If we lived in a big city, it would be impossible. The news is full of reports and the riots, the looting, the panic, the people who are trying to run away, but this thing is too big to run from. There is no running, no moving anywhere that's safe. We're all in a future dead zone, all of us. The end. Extinction. Just like the dinosaurs. Trust me, if any of the research I'd done had given me even the slightest bit of hope that some place was safe, I would have done whatever I had to do to get us there, even if I'd had to plan on going to Antarctica. But that's the worst part of this whole thing. I can't do anything. The clock keeps ticking, and every second is a second less that we have. 
Millie and I take our morning walk a little after breakfast. Me, toast and coffee. She, waffles smothered in maple syrup. Our closest neighbour, a quarter of a mile away, Mr. Theodore James, a cranky old bastard if I ever met one, is sitting and smoking on his porch as always, his mutt, Trixie, by his side. Trixie gets up, does her crazy shake, and pads down to the end of the driveway to smother Millie in sloppy kisses. Mommy, can we still get a dog when I start school? Can we? I try to reply, feel the catch in my throat and swallow hard. Uh-huh. I blink back tears, hating this momentary weakness. Millie doesn't notice, thankfully. She's too busy rubbing Trixie behind the ears and burying her face in the dog's black and white fur. Crying over things you can't change is for fools, my mother always said. I hated hearing those words each and every time, but lately they kept running through my head, and sometimes I think they're the only things that are holding me together. The words are Millie. Always Millie. I want a dog just like you, Trixie, Millie whispers. I wave our goodbyes. No reason to be rude on account of not liking someone. Another one of Mother's sayings. And we walk down to the end of the road. It almost feels like a normal morning in our little speck of a town here in the Midwest. And yes, the town is that small. We have one gas station, no traffic lights, and you have to drive over an hour just to get to the interstate. Minnie and I live in the house I grew up in, a house I inherited from my parents after they were killed by a drunk driver while visiting my mother's sister in Tulsa. I wish they'd had a chance to meet Millie, but she didn't come around until I turned twenty-nine. By then they'd been in their graves for seven years. Millie and I get to the end of the road and turn around. Mr. James and Trixie are already inside when we pass their house again. Ten days until impact. On the outside I'm all smiles as I cut the crusts from Millie's grilled cheese sandwiches, all hugs when I dry her off after her bath. Inside, I feel like I'm melting, like my puzzle pieces are falling apart and there isn't enough glue in the world to hold them together. But I'm trying, I'm trying so hard, and the clock keeps ticking. Seven, Seven days, days until impact. The days pass slowly, but they still go too fast. I've kept Millie occupied with books and crayons and walks up and down our street, but it's all like a dream. One of those dreams where everything is perfectly fine, but you know something bad is waiting right around the corner. There's part of me that wants desperately to cling to a miracle. A uh, maybe it won't really happen. A uh, maybe it will somehow pass us by, no matter how many calculations have been done. I think about all the disaster movies, how there's always a master plan or a lottery, something that gives people hope. Real life isn't like that. There are lots of people who claim they'll survive in their underground shelters and there's a big enough conspiracy theorist who claims the government has built something and only a handful of people know about it. The same people, presumably, who are going to spend the rest of their lives there. Maybe it's true. Who knows? For the rest of us, though, there is no rest of our lives. There are only days. Take shelter. As if a roof can protect anyone from what's going to happen or what's going to happen after. Have a surplus of food. And pray. That's a prevailing message. And all the while they talk about stages of impact, contact and compression, excavation and modification and collapse. Crying over things you can't change is for fools. Mummy! I look up from the book we were reading, realising I stopped lost in my tangle of thoughts. I'm sorry, baby girl. Mummy was wool gathering. <laughs> she giggles. You're silly sometimes. I'm silly? No, no, you're silly. 
I tickle her sides until she's giggling and twisting in my arms. Then I tickle her feet and she shrieks with laughter. I want to capture the sound and halt it forever, no matter how short that forever is. When she finally wriggles free from my grasp, she plops onto her stomach and props her chin in her palms. Can we go to the grocery store tomorrow? <laughs> I laugh, but it feels like broken glass in my throat. We could if we needed anything, but we don't. Remember how Mommy bought extra food? Uh-huh. We have enough, so we don't need to go to the store for a while. She quirks up her face. Can we go visit Miss Karen? I take a deep breath. Too smart. She's too smart. When I speak, I force my voice to say even, controlled. Don't you remember? Miss Karen went to visit her daughter. That's why Mommy took off work. Will she be back soon? Pretty soon. Hey, how about we finish this book? Okay. She crawls up into my lap and I hold her close. After I've tucked her into bed, I step out into the backyard. My father and I used to stargaze when I was only a few years older than Millie. He taught me the constellations, patiently pointing at each one until I could recognise the shapes without his help. They were a link to something bigger, something more, but no longer. Now Orion's belt mocks me with its precision, Cassiopeia with her beauty, a beauty that will remain even when no one's left to see. Once a comfort, all of them. Now my enemy. Why? 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 I bite the inside of my cheek until I taste the coppery slickness of blood. I won't cry. I can't. If I start, I'm not sure I'll be able to stop and there's not enough time left for tears. If not for Millie, I'd let them fall. I'd rage and scream and tear out my hair. I'd roll around and punch and kick like a toddler in the throes of a tantrum. For the first time in a long time, I think of Jack, my ex-husband. He left when he found out I was pregnant. His wish to have kids had turned out to be nothing more than hot air, like all the other promises he made. I shove the thoughts away hard and go back inside, careful not to slam the door. Five days until impact. I'm stirring cheese into the macaroni. <laughs> Funny how we haven't lost power. I thought for sure we would have by now. And staring at the clock when Millie tugs my sleeve. What's up, Buttercup? She gives me a half-smile. Are you okay, Mommy? Of course I am. Why? You seem sad. I force a smile on my face, but my fingers tighten around the handle of the wooden spoon. I'm perfectly fine, just a little tired. How about you? I'm okay. Hungry? She smiles, then a real smile. Uh-huh. Good, because there's too much here for me to eat by myself. My gaze flicks to the clock again, and even when I turn away, I feel it counting down the seconds, the minutes, the hours, the lives. I'm almost asleep when I hear the sound, something sharp and quick that echoes itself away, and I know exactly what it is, a gunshot. I'm out of my bed in a flash. I peek in on Millie, but she's still sleeping. My heart races when I run downstairs to check the locks on the windows and the doors. Funny, I never worried about that before. I don't think anyone here will do anything, and it's not like we're on the way to anywhere, but better safe than sorry. I stay up for a long time, but I don't hear anything other than the steady hum of the refrigerator and the creak of the house settling deeper into its bones. Four days until impact. Mommy, it's Trixie. Trixie's here. What? Trixie's here on the porch. Sure enough, Mr. James's dog is on our front porch, pacing in strange erratic circles, her tongue hanging from her mouth. 
Then I see the blood on her front paw, and my mouth goes dry. I crouch down and put my hands on Millie's shoulders and look her in the eyes. Honey, I need you to stay inside for a few minutes while I go and check on Mr. James, okay? Can I come with you? No, because I can go faster by myself. But I can be fast too. No. The word comes out sharper than I wanted it to, and her face twists. I take a deep breath. I need you to be a big girl for mommy, okay? Why don't you play with your toys for a few minutes? I promise I'll be super fast and we'll have breakfast when I get back. Okay. I lock the door and I'm already halfway to a run when I shove the key in my pocket, Trixie following at my heels. Mr. James's front door is partly open, propped open with a rock that matches the rock surrounding the flower beds around his porch. I leave Trixie outside and push the rock out of the way so she can't nose her way in. I find Mr. James in the living room, sitting in a recliner, and for a split second I think, pretend he's sleeping. But there's a spray of blood on the wall behind him, bloody paw prints all around, and part of his head is gone, and on the floor beside the chair a gun. I sink to my knees, holding both hands over my mouth. Don't fall apart, I tell myself. Not over this. Millie needs you to be strong, so be strong. I'm not sure who I should call first. And then I make a sound in my throat, a sound that might be a strange sort of laughter. Call someone? And for what? Mr. James didn't have any family that I know of, only Trixie, and I'm not going to bother anyone in town, not now. But I, I can't just leave him like this. So I grab a blanket from his linen closet and cover him up, careful not to breathe too, too deep or not to look too close. When I pull the door shut behind me, Trixie whines and does the strange circle pace again, but she follows me back. The gun tucked in the back of my jeans feels wrong. It feels like a, a weight of why, but better to put it away somewhere safe rather than leaving it out in the open. Millie is waiting in the front hallway. I put on a smile that feels too small and too tight. Trixie's going to stay with us for a little while. How does that sound? Millie grins. There's a funny little pause right before she does. We discover Trixie likes human food just fine, and after a bath with a baby shampoo I use for Millie, I let her climb up on the sofa. Millie doesn't ask about Mr. James until I tuck her into bed. He he went away for a few days, and he knew you'd take good care of Trixie when he's gone. But how come he didn't knock on the door? Why did he just leave her outside? I think because he knew we were asleep and Trixie was fine. Remember how she always used to sit on his porch? Trixie jumps up onto Millie's bed and sprawls out beside her, tail going mile a minute. After a kiss, Millie goodnight, she grins. You had to kiss Trixie too? I do. The dog's tail nearly spins in a circle. Another kiss for me? Of course. I kiss her forehead softly, trying not to cry, not to think. When I'm halfway to the door, Millie says, Wait! I spin around and she's holding out her favourite teddy bear. Here, you keep Teddy tonight. I have Trixie now, so I don't need him. I stand outside her door, with the bear clutched to my chest and a knot inside me. This isn't fair. It isn't fair! Three days until impact. How about you sleep in my room tonight? And Trixie too? Okay, Trixie can sleep there too. Two, Two days, days until impact. Why don't we make your favourite cake tonight? Pineapple smushdown cake? The very same one. Can we have it for dinner? 
Cake for dinner? Aha, uh-huh, cake for dinner! She giggles and Trixie barks. The three of us have cake for dinner and for dessert. One day until impact. Mommy, is something bad coming? Why would you think that? She shrugs and my heart drops. It feels that way, I guess, she says, her voice little more than a whisper. My fingernails dig half-moons in my palms. It's a bad storm, that's all. She turns back to her colouring book, and I'm frozen in place, the lie like ashes in my mouth. Three hours until impact. I slip out of bed once Millie is fast asleep and open the top drawer of my bureau. The gun is tucked all the way in the back underneath a nightgown I haven't worn in years. Millie is on her side with one hand beneath her cheek. Trixie is a small, snoring ball at her feet. I wonder if Mr. James knew she'd come to us or maybe he just didn't care. My hand shakes as I brush the hair from Millie's forehead. A kindness, then, to end the waiting? To give our story a definite end and not a maybe? We're at the edge of the impact zone. From everything I've read... The end will be fast. The people left will suffer through the end of everything else. Unless something changes. Unless some of the calculations are wrong, and we're one of the latter. All I have to do is press the barrel to the side of her head, then to mine, and our stars will wink out, no chance of suffering or starving, of dying in pain. Trixie lifts her head, gives a little whine. I cover my mouth and stagger over to the bureau, shove the gun back in the door. No, I can't. I won't. Not like that. Not like that. My hands are still shaking when I sink down on the sofa. If it were just me, I wouldn't care. It wouldn't hurt. But Millie will never get to start school, never be a teenager, never go on a date or drive a car. She'll never have a chance to grow up. She'll never have a chance to be anything other than a five-year-old girl. I double over my mouth, open in a silent O. The concrete in my heart gives way beneath the weight of all the nevers and my damn shatters. The tears come in a rush, hot and angry, and they hurt. God, do they hurt. I bury my face in the throat pillow to muffle the sound. Damn God, damn everyone. It wasn't enough. I want more. I want to see her sixth birthday. I want to see her wave goodbye as she gets on the school bus. I want... To to lose her first tooth and to wake and find a present from the tooth fairy beneath her pillow. I want so much. I want everything. Crying over things you can't change is for fools, I tell myself, but I can't listen to the words because once this night is over, I'll never see Millie again. And if that isn't worth crying about, then nothing is. Mummy. I scrub the tears from my face and bite back the sobs as I turn around. She's standing in the doorway, holding something at her side, something partially obscured by the dog. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to wake you up. I turn my face and wipe away the rest of the tears. I hear a rustle and a click. She's standing beneath an open umbrella, the white fabric covered in bright pink dots. In spite of the lump in my chest, I can't help but smile. What's that for? Don't remember. For a few moments, I can't remember how to breathe. Finally, I nod and pat the sofa next to me. Well, come on then, let's sit here for a while. Till the storm's over? Yeah, until the storm's over. 
I hold the umbrella while she curls up beside me and scoots under my arm. Trixie takes the cushion next to her. I close my eyes and kiss the top of Millie's head, breathe in the smell of her hair and her skin, and hold her tight beneath the umbrella while we wait for the storm to pass. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Damien Angelica Walters. Damien, thank you so much. Just fantastic. <laughs> Just fantastic. And Anne-Marie, oh man, you do it justice. So good. Well done. Thank you so much. Couple more things then, just before we moving on, keeping this train going. We reached our first initial goal on Patreon, which I'm just over the moon with. Do you know what I mean? Just we've settled in there and we're kind of, this is the kind of, you know, once we got that goal, officially we can kind of survive. Now, <laughs> you know what's coming next, is it? It kind of, as soon as we hit that goal, it just stopped. And I even mentioned it kind of last week as well. And not one, since then, not one person kind of came along and like, yes, you know what I mean? Let her kind of help her, yeah, you know what I mean? Just support her. But what can I say? You know what I mean? We kind of, we got there at least. If that's, if that's all you've given up, do you know what I mean? If, if you just kind of listen and take this show, I'm glad you just listened to it, to be quite honest. But if you want to, you know, help her and donate and just, be able to kind of commission a story would be a big buzz for me. Do you know what I mean? In kind of 2016, that's the goal in 2016 to get the Patreon page right up there and kind of do wonders with it. You know what I mean? Kind of pay writers. You know what I mean? Ten years Starship Sofa's going. If you've been listening ten years and haven't donated, yeah, man, I'm coming round. I'm coming round. You can cook me tea. We've also got as well, the newsletter has just come out yesterday and I mentioned donkeys, donkeys, donkeys ago that we had a little bit of a kind of surprise going on in the newsletter. And if you remember, everything by Morgan Saletta. Now, everything was a kind of fact article we did. Well, now Morgan has recreated that in print format. So that's a cool thing to come over and subscribe to the newsletter because that's coming and just fascinating. It's lovely to have, you know, that was one of your kind of favourite fact articles. And to do audio is a kind of big, big thing, do you know what I mean? But and it's a big thing to do, the kind of, God, that's worse for me to kind of actually do, put the words on the on the screen or anything like that. <gasps> Couldn't think of anything worse. <laughs> but we've got Morgan there has recreated that. So, yes, that's a, a good reason to kind of come out and, you know, Get get subscribed on the newsletter. Oh, loads of stuff going on there, mind you. Loads, so I ain't going to take up the time. But it's going massive, to be quite. I'm so pleased with it. Do you know what I mean? So, next up is the interview. And I just want to kind of lay the ground rules a bit. See, I'm interviewing a gentleman called Vinay Gupta. And, you know, my kind of toy town title for Vinay is Disaster Specialist, you know, Disaster Future Specialist. And, you know, we'll cover some pretty hard-hitting subjects in this little interview. And I was, when when we kind of, you know, it was lovely to talk to Vinnie. When we kind of finished, do you know what I mean? I was buzzing with this interview, do you know what I mean? It was just like kind of another highlight, you know, for me, kind of talking to someone who does this kind of work, you know, kind of who looks into kind of the future and works out what's going to happen and how it'll happen and how it plays out. And then he'll kind of, Tell governments, tell agencies, you know what I mean? 
He, this is all worked out. Vinny works all this out. And it was just, you know, lovely to kind of speak to Vinny. But then about a week later, the kind of just hideous, you know, events happened and unfolded in Paris. And I just, it was so close to that. I couldn't really play the interview. Do you know what I mean? It was just, it was too raw. I mean, I was, it was just something that just kind of, sick in you, you know what I mean, the kind of just what went on there was just horrible and I just kind of thought well, well you know it's a great interview but I'll just kind of leave it a little bit and I, I still you know I'm dying to play this interview with you and you know because we cover some great subjects and like say Vinnie just a clever clever guy do you know what I mean I want to try and get Vinnie back on you know because there's part of what else he does is, is worth talking about as well now, this is a cool bit. We've got like a, a, a giveaway from Vinnie, but I'll tell you, you know, listen to the interview because you might not want the giveaway. Listen to the interview and then when we come back, I'll tell you how you can get your free prize from Vinnie. Now, there's jobs and then there's jobs. And you, to be quite honest, you seem to have one of these jobs that just sound amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've been very lucky work-wise uh, in terms of finding like genuinely interesting things. Uh, so, I mean, right now I'm working for the Ethereum Foundation and I'm working for Consensus Systems, basically building out this kind of new future of the internet stuff. Tell us then, you know, just to kind of get up to speed, what exactly, because I'm kind of calling you a futures disaster consultant, which is just an awesome thing to have on a business card. What is it that you actually do? Well, so the disaster stuff has always run parallel with my technical career. Um, basically, I figured out that if I wanted the freedom to do the work on really hard disasters, I wasn't going to be able to do that as part of a charity because nobody would fund a charity that did stuff that was that scary. <laughs> right? So I basically worked to pay the bills. And on the side, uh, I've worked on all kinds of crazy things, sometimes in partnership with big organizations like the Department of Defense, sometimes with the Spanish government, sometimes on my own. So I worked on pandemic flu, worked on nuclear war, uh, I worked on nuclear terrorism. I worked on biological warfare, pandemic flus, genocide. Uh, you name it, I've done. You know, <laughs> you've done a lot. Work in those areas. What? Just out of curiosity, then, what what does worry you the, the, the most? Do you know what I mean? Is it like a natural disaster, or is it what we kind of come up with? You know, like man-made. Or do we would we mess up things more? Um, the only thing that I really, really worry about fundamentally is nanotechnology so you know global warming global warming could really mess up the world no doubt at all global warming could really mess up the world nuclear war bad and bad enough but it's unlikely to be the whole thing that we would have seen say in the 1980s right you know if we saw a nuclear exchange now it's unlikely to turn into full mutually assured destruction world dies of the fallout kind of stuff what i worry about is that you're going to see more and more and more human mastery of the ability to move molecules around until you'll finally see some, you know, mentally ill guy with, you know, two PhDs in a research laboratory come up with this nice little replicator that cuts DNA into 10,000 base pair length strings and then drops it in the ocean. What do you think then? Because like, there's been from on that side of it then, all this kind of, you know, this kind of reoccurs well hype, you know, where, because I've just seen an article about, a week ago where he's saying, you know, like 20 years time, it'll all be kind of nano, you know, inside the brain and we'll be able to kind of enjoy life better, you know, like be more happier, you know, don't even worry about kind of diseases and all things like that. Does that not in some ways or, you know, balance, balance your worries up? No. 
In a nutshell, no. Because while people are building all of that stuff out, the world will still be filled with poverty, horror, violence, untreated mental illness, you know, child abuse and all the rest of it. And, you know, desperate people do desperate things, as Jimmy Cascio says. Right? You're eventually going to find some terrorist organization that rather than flying planes into buildings, you know, hijacks a lab, kidnaps somebody's kids and forces them to produce a weapon. This stuff is really, really dangerous. And we've got maybe 10, 15, 20 years to figure out what we're going to do about it. But if we don't do something about it, eventually you're going to see uh, terrorist use or you're going to see a, a state use as a weapon of these technologies. Somebody will get something wrong and you'll wind up with a real problem. So that's the thing that scares me most. There are lots of things that scare me a little bit, but that's the big one that I don't see any possible solution to other than, um, you know, forcing all the people that want to use those kind of technologies to migrate to, say, Mars or the moon and having those technologies only used off the planet's surface. That's the only way that I think that we've got any hope at all in the future. I mean, that's almost, you're kind of saying there, there is no happy ending if, if that kind of, if this, you know, scenario comes off. Well, I mean, if we just allow this stuff to be spattered all over the world, of course we're going to wind up with huge problems, right? There's no way around that. But suppose that we take a different angle on this, and we say in the future we basically treat the Earth like a single global national park, right? You know, if you want to use certain kinds of technologies, you can't do it on Earth because it's too dangerous. But you've got Mars base, you've got Moon base, you know, you've got orbital stuff that's in orbit around the moon. You know, there are plenty of places you can go other than Earth. And you basically have a situation where you restrict the really dangerous technology to non-biological uh, arenas. And you can easily imagine a human culture that works that way. All the crazy, scary, dangerous stuff that gives you physical immortality but occasionally wipes out half the planet is on Mars where it's perfectly safe and it's not going any further than your dome. Right, And if you're feeling really paranoid, the guys that are working on the really dangerous technology, you build their modules right on top of a 300 megaton nuclear bomb. And in the event that you get some kind of replicator accident or you get an uncontrolled AI outbreak or whatever it is, you just remotely detonate the nuke and you get rid of the technological problem. But isn't, aren't we, you know, isn't this kind of future rushing quicker with the nanotech side of it, quicker than we can get to Mars and get the kind of... The evil to Mars. Elon Musk, you're our only hope. <laughs> well, it's funny because, I mean, they seem to be struggling all over. You know what I mean? Like, you know, they just had a big crash, a few, you know, a couple of months ago. So technologies, they seem to be struggling to get kind of, you know, we're using, I don't know how old, you know, Russian rockets to get people to the, the International Space Station there. It seems we're struggling with, you know, so that I'm guessing this kind of future that you're, you're predicting is going to come before we can even challenge it, you know, and get rid of it. Well, I mean, Musk is doing a very good job right now, right? But i got to ask you a question here. Do you really believe that the U.S. military has no ability to get a satellite into orbit in a hurry on their own if they need to? I'm not. The more I look at it, yeah, the more I'm kind of thinking it's not as straightforward for them. Do you know what I mean? It's, yes, they might get a satellite up, you know what I mean? But the way Kurzweil's talking about these kind of nanotechnology and everything like that's coming rapidly. Oh, it's I coming. Think it's, I think it's a kind of hair in a tortoise race, do you not think? But the point that I'm making here is it's obvious that the US government, for all of its desire for superiority in every arena, must have classified space launch capabilities, right? I'm hoping. 
It must have. What are we supposed to believe? That they've simply abandoned the high frontier to the Russians? Right? <laughs> yeah, you sort of look at that. Now, okay, one possibility is that they've got a classified space program and it's been mismanaged to death in exactly the same way that the F-35 has been mismanaged to death. So you could suggest that, you know, bureaucracy in the classified world has completely destroyed America's strategic lead, and as a result, they've got no space program. That is certainly a possibility. The other possibility is that they've got a perfectly healthy space plane program, and the thing is so advanced that they just can't use it. So it has to remain hidden because it's, you know, super advanced rocket engineering stuff, and if it got out, you'd be able to get things like ICBM missiles that could get in far faster than they could be stopped or detected, you know. So... You've got to either make a decision, which is, yes, the U.S. has classified space planes, or no, it doesn't. I'm of the opinion that they do, but that's only based on general principles. Everybody I know who really studies space, when I ask them that question, they're like, no, no, definitely not. No classified space plane. I choose to remain naive and have faith in the <laughs> that they really do have the gear. The question is, how do we get them to use it to get Mars base built faster so that we can then begin to send all the nanotechnology there? Mm-hmm. Right? Because I don't see another way that we can do this. The nanotech, if it arrives before we've got ways of managing it, is so dangerous. You know, we as a species are not ready to have atomic control of matter at the same time as we've got, you know, five million kids a year dying of starvation. You can't put those two facts on one planet without somebody risking, you know, political change by the sword using nanotech as a lever. That's a good point, that. That's a a very good point. Vidya, I tell you what would be, I'm not saying would be nice, but let's just say, you know, the normal catastrophes that we, we, we have, you know, the kind of the flood, the famine, those scenarios, you know, you've kind of, I'm guessing, worked all those out. But you hear these kind of urban myth, you know, scenarios. What do you make of these? Do you kind of work these out as well? And I've just like come up with the example, you know, this, the bumblebee, if that became extinct, would that, is that a scenario where it would kind of wipe out man because of all the pollen, you know, not going on? Um, well, I mean, very hard to say, right? Very hard to say. Fortunately, the bees are actually springing back pretty quickly. Once we identified that it was probably these uh, nicotine-based pesticides that were killing them, and the commercial bee breeders began to you know, massively change their practices to produce just vastly more bees, the whole thing looks like it's stabilizing. And I hope it continues to do so. Uh, I mean, if we did see a situation where there was some kind of you know, bee-pocalypse or bee-clasm, um, I don't know what we would do. I've really, really, really got no idea. I mean, what are you going to do, like train locusts to do it? <laughs> I just, I just I can't imagine how you'd do it. You know, it's it's kind of um, your job to kind of come up with these kind of horrific kind of outcomes. Do you know what I mean? It must make, you know, when you've kind of finished the kind of scenario, it must make uncomfortable reading for people to... Are you ignored quite often when you you know when you've kind of come up with these reports? Are you kind of you know what I mean? You you put all this kind of data in front of people. Do they shun you or do they listen? <laughs> Depends on the scenario, right? So uh, I'll give you an example. Ten years ago, I did a paper for the Department of Defense called Cheap ID. Right, full name is State in a Box Identity Services Architecture, and that you know, was a a really detailed study on how you could deploy a biometric ID card that would help refugees or people in war zones get access to government services or travel or whatever it is, but done in such a way that if your civil war turned into a genocide, 
you couldn't go around and identify everybody from a specific ethnic group using their last name and then shoot them. Right? And this was a major piece of work, you know. I mean, it was uh, it was six months of hell, and at the end of it, I think I'd put on about 20 kilos of weight. I mean, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And what came out of that was this totally new perspective on how biometrics work. Ten years later, people are just beginning to really pick that work up. It wasn't until the invention of Bitcoin and then Ethereum that people perked up and were like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There is an answer. It's over here. It's in this 10-year-old document. Maybe we could do this thing. So it has been you know, this process of laying down seeds and then being prepared to wait a generation for those seeds to mature. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the Hex here. You know, I did this incredibly cheap disaster relief shelter called Hex here. When I started it, I knew it was going to be 10 years before we saw mass adoption, because that's just how slow the world is and how it works. Now we're at the point where we're just about ready for mass adoption, and you know it all sort of comes together at the same time, and slowly, 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 we're beginning to put the pieces in place to really change how the world works. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that, you know, because I was going to ask you about the, the hex- hexayurts. Tell us just so people know what we're, what we're talking about. Well, so the easiest thing, if you're by a computer as you're listening to the podcast, it's just to type it into Google Image Search, right? Hexa yurt, one word. Um, but if you want to try and visualize it in your head, you take six sheets of plywood, put them on their sides, and make a hexagonal wall. And then you take six more sheets of plywood and you cut them in half so you've got two triangles. Then you put those two triangles together to make a big triangle. And you put six of those big triangles on top of the wall and join them into a shallow, cool roof. And there's your little module for hexier. And you can make the walls twice as high if you want more headroom. You can join two or three of them together if you want a sort of modular shelter. But the basic idea is that you could take an existing factory that produces plywood or structural insulated panels or insulation or honeycomb sheet or whatever it is. You could put minimal tooling on the end of that supply chain like a saw. And then suddenly your factory that used to produce you know, plywood sheet is also producing emergency housing. The idea is to do a super low investment way of doing emergency shelters. And, and you're saying the kind of this is the, the way to go instead of the old canvas tents, you know, that kind of image. Well, tents are terrible. I mean, you know, imagine trying to raise a family of five in one tent for 10 years in a, in a desert climate. You know, it's boiling in the tent nine hours a day and it's freezing in the tent 14 hours a day. Right, and it's the right temperature one hour a day. <laughs> you know, it's just a terrible, terrible, terrible way of doing things, which is why people don't live in tents when they've got any choice. So, if we're going to be taking responsibility for the refugees and their lives, I think that we ought to be putting them in conditions that we would consider acceptable, rather than putting them in the worst conditions that we think they can stand. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about then, if we can, you know. Because it, it's happening now, you know, in our lives, we're watching this kind of Syrian crisis, you know, unfold. Is it is it happening, you know, this kind of mass exodus, how you kind of, I'm guessing you've planned, you know, like a, a scenario like this. Is it happening as, as it planned? Well, so the planning work that I did for mass migration was based on climate refugees. There was this notion that you were going to see climate refugees on the order of 150 million people. And I started planning for that. What I anticipated that we haven't seen is that the Western agencies were going to build their refugee cities and their refugee countries 
as close to the disaster area as possible to try and stop the distance that the population would have to travel because travel is really dangerous when you're doing it on foot with small children and no money. Right. So if you wanted to save the Syrians, I think the best thing that you could do would be to build new cities. And I mean cities because we're dealing with tens of millions of people um, uh, somewhere which is pretty decent geographically and is also currently underinhabited. And if you look on a map, you know, there are lots of those places. If you take the road between, you know, Damascus and Berlin, there are probably half a dozen places that you could consider building those kind of cities. But instead, what's happening is we're not making any kind of coherent offer to the refugees. So they're headed for the best countries they can find. And they're attempting to get their feet under the table because they're trying to provide a better future for them and their kids. And you can't blame them for doing that because unless we make them a better offer, they're just going to come to the best country they can find. Uh, As for what the better offer would be, I think the vast majority of Syrians would far rather eventually return to their homeland if conditions in Syria can be stabilised. So if you tell people, look, if you come to Germany and you get settled in Germany, you're going to be Germans, your kids will be Germans, you're going to lose your cultural identity. On the other hand, if you come to this refugee city, we'll give you a temporary passport, we'll give you free education and free medical care, we'll give you a decent quality of life, and once there is peace in Syria, you'll be able to go home again. I think an awful lot of them would voluntarily take that, but the only way that you can make it acceptable is if you make a better offer than risk your children's lives traveling to Europe and then become a German, right? You have to make a better offer because people are not just going to sit there and get put where they're shoved. They're going to do everything that they can to get into the best country that they're able to, and if we don't make them a better offer, they're just going to go. So I think the responsibility is very much on us. When when you're doing one of these plans, and like you say, we'll, we'll stick with the, the, the Syrian crisis. And again, you've answered a little bit. Do, do things kind of pop up that you even you haven't foreseen, you know, happening? Well, you know what Einstein said, right? Only two things are infinite, you <laughs> and human stupidity, and I'm not sure about the universe. <laughs> so, <laughs> tell us a, a typical, you know, job for you how i mean do you actually is it just you know you're sitting in your kind of nice warm cozy flat or do you actually get out there in the kind of wilderness and you know and rough it for a few or a few days few weeks to see what would happen well i mean for me uh, i spent a lot of time in my 20s you know basically backpacking around america you know uh you know tussling with bears and riding freight trains and you know getting taught how to go outdoor camping by crazy vietnam veterans so I had quite an adventurous 1990s. And off the back of that, you know, it kind of shifts your perspective, right? You begin to think of home as something that you have to be able to carry in a backpack. And you begin to assess life in terms of, you know, if I own that, can I carry it? You know, do I, can I cook on that? You know, you basically make it at this very minimalistic level. And it took me a long time to get out of that way of thinking about my life and return to something resentful looking at the world. Um, but what I definitely don't do is show up in disaster zones. There's just no point in you know sending a middle class you know uh, British engineer to go to a disaster zone in a country like Haiti. The Haitians have tons of engineers, right? They're not short of engineers. They might be short of an idea, and they might need to take a look at the Hexart website and figure out how they could use it themselves. But Haitia, you know, Haitians have 
lots of engineering degrees. They've got lots of architects. They build lots of buildings. If they're not in Haiti anymore and they've emigrated somewhere else, those people can look at the plans. They can learn them the same way that anybody else can. They can take that knowledge home or they can communicate it to their friends and relatives. Same thing for Syria. I'm very against the idea of, you know, taking the knowledge, embedding in it a single person and sending the person. Like, that's what we invented the internet to avoid. We want to use the local capacities that people have because there's no country in the world where there's so little education that you can't get this stuff done. You know, any place that you see concrete buildings, there's an engineer. That engineer could easily be the guy that figures out whether the hex here is right for the place you're building. And again, did you say it's the now and people's now starting to kind of realize about your hexayurts? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, five years ago, you know, every time there was a disaster, I'd have to contact people and try to push it under their noses and say, have you thought about this? And half the time, or 90% of the time, I wouldn't get a reply to the email. Now, every time there's a disaster, people write to me and like, we're considering the hex here. Could you tell us a bit more about how we might use it? Right? And those are, you know, officials from the relevant, uh, you know, sort of charities or even states in some occasions. So I think we're pretty close to a kind of crossing point where the next time this happens or the time after that, or one more time after that, there'll be a kind of click, there'll be a passing point, and then, boom, you'll get hexiarts. And, I mean, again, is it just like a simple case of, you know, them just putting the plywood together and, and that's how they go and they'll, they'll, they'll ditch these kind of canvas tents? Is, is it as simple as that? Yeah, it's exactly as simple as that. You wonder why it. You wonder why it. It hasn't happened now. You know. You wonder why you've had to kind of shove it under the noses, and they're still kind of ignoring it. When it is literally get us, get someone to get get the plywood together, and that's a, a much better scenario. You know, someone like, you've just made the best example in a desert where you just cannot control the temperature. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you exactly why it is that way. Right, the UN has no systemic pressure to make it provide refugees with better quality of life, right? But they've got lots of systemic pressure to keep the refugees as miserable, miserable as they can be, right? So right now, um, the UN gets paid for handling refugee problems, but if the refugees are really comfortable and well taken care of, what will happen is that they will choose to stay refugees rather than going back home to be landless peasantry that live in some terrible slum in a place where you've got rats the size of house cats, right? So if you make the refugee camps good, the people will choose to stay there, and the UN continues to sell the lie that refugee is a temporary status. Refugee is a permanent status. It's 10, 15 years. It's going to last a generation in almost all cases. If you're going to keep people in a temporary condition, it has to be comfortable enough because temporary means a generation. But because we continue to lie to governments that the refugees are only going to be there for three years and then everything will settle and they can go home, what happens is you never adequately provision for these people and nobody's it's nobody's fault that a refugee dies of the cold or dies of the heat. Nobody's taking responsibility for these folks. Mm-hmm. right? And to get a sense of how bad that is, most refugees, uh, if they die in a UN camp or a camp run by any of the other charities... Nobody ever bothers to ascertain the cause of death. And in many cases, they don't even keep death statistics for how many people died. So if you don't check, you know, if the purpose of a refugee camp is to keep people alive and you don't check whether it's keeping people alive or they're dying, how are you supposed to know if it's working and how are you going to make yourself accountable? 
Yeah, I know, I know. I was going to say, it's just like, it's so, you know, basic kind of bookkeeping almost. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's bookkeeping a- if you gave this job to, you know, if you gave this job to a junior doctor and said, could you write down, you know, four pages of A4 on how you would design a temporary facility for keeping people alive, they would do a better job than the humanitarian agencies typically do. Scary, scary. Because what's happening is that the process is completely politically corrupted by big lies about what constitutes a refugee's actual future. Once you're out and you're on the move and you're out of your own country and you're on temporary passport and all the rest of that kind of stuff, you're either going to resettle in a new country and stay permanently or you're going to get stuck in a camp for years. And the only solution I can see to that is that you have to make the camps good enough that people consider being stuck in one a better option than taking their chances on the road. And the only lever that I can see for making that real is good quality of life housing and free education and medical care. Even if the education is on the internet, you know, if it's like, well, you know, I'll tell you what, we can either attempt to smuggle ourselves illegally into America or we can stay right the heck where we are and you know, they say they're going to rebuild our city in five years. In the meantime, they're going to get a master's degree on the internet. Maybe, just maybe, you could push people into a position where the combination of physical security and free education would be enough to make refugee something that had some dignity to it, rather than being just warehousing people that no state currently wants. Vinya, I mean, we're getting to the end there now. You know, I've kept you too long. But just a couple more questions there, and it's, it's it's quite you know in a way all these kind of you know you're surrounding yourself by all these kind of disasters and these kind of possible you know scenario scenarios that are you know about to happen or are happening at this moment um in a kind of lighthearted way just sleep well at night oh yeah sleep like a baby <laughs> I mean I, I really 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 the reason that I can do this work uh, is because you know I have a, a fundamentally non empathic personality. Right. It doesn't mean that I'm a bad person, but I don't feel other people's problems or other people's pain as if it was mine. Right. If somebody has a problem, I want them not to have a problem, but them having a problem does not immediately make me feel miserable or worse about the world. You know, it's like, yeah, okay, that's the way it is. It's a problem. If we could do something to help, we'll do something to help. But if we can't do something to help and they all die, well, that's just how the world is. Mm-hmm. And having that kind of personality is what's allowed me to work on all these scenarios without it destroying my life completely. It's, I, I guess, you have got to be that, you know, that kind of personality. Do you know what I mean? Because, like you say, you're dealing in some, you're working in some, you know, areas that are just kind of horrific. This is why so many brain surgeons are sociopaths. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're people that lack empathy in a really fundamental way. And, you know, if they get decent support and have reasonable mental health and are not miserable, they can be highly productive. And if they're messed up, they're incredibly dangerous to be anywhere near. Um, So I think that it's quite, you know, it's quite a delicate balance. But taking people with empathy disorders and pointing them at the world's worst problems is a fairly efficient use of resources. One last question then. You know, you, these scenarios, do you do any for fun? Do you know what I mean? Do you, do, like, say, you know, the meteor crashing, the aliens landing, do you work anything like that out? Oh, man. So the, the, the classic thing is this. You know, even the Federal Emergency Management Agency has a webpage about getting prepared for zombie apocalypses. <laughs> and you would think, but I've never really gotten my head around the zombie apocalypse scenario. 
Because, you know, it's kind of, well, all right. So if we're going to take a little crack at this, right? The first thing is, if you're going to survive a zombie apocalypse, you have to stay far, far away from other people because there are threats, right? But you also have to stay close to a food source um, because otherwise you're going to starve to death, right? So I think the secret in a zombie apocalypse is probably to go to a place where there are lots and lots and lots of cattle and hope that the zombies only eat human beings. And that's my advice. <laughs> that's just fun. But yeah, it's been, honestly, it's been lovely talking to you. It's just kind of, I know we kind of talking about these kind of horrific things and just, but it's just been, you know, it, it's lovely to kind of dig in, especially with someone kind of like yourself who kind of, who's dealing with this. It's It's been lovely. One, one thing that I should probably mention is I actually have a lot of optimism about the way the world is going right now because of the changes in technology. So there's a thing called a Sawyer filter, which is the size of a Coke can, and it will purify a million gallons of clean water, including taking out all of the viruses. Right? You could buy them on Amazon for about $100. Right. Right? And you can see what's happening with all the solar panels. They're getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So actually, my job is getting easier and easier and easier when it comes to doing this large-scale release stuff because the technology is so good now. You know, I'm really, I'm profoundly optimistic about our ability to actually take care of everybody because it's becoming technologically possible and even cheap in a way that was completely unthinkable before. Mm-hmm. You know, it's actually getting better. Well, let's let's hope so, Jimmy. Let, let's hope let's let's end it on a kind of a positive because it's. When you do kind of think about it, you know, in, in some cases, it's just, you know, it's just, especially when we talk, you know, because I'm sure that the world is going like kind of the Kurzweil way, do you know what I mean? And if we've got to get them up to, you know, the kind of the bad people up to Mars, it's kind of a scary scenario of that. Well, I mean, the bad people are just people, right? It's the technology that you've got to move. Mm-hmm. You want to do nanotech, you're going to have to go to Mars. Here's a one-way ticket. Thank you very much. Have a good day, please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, listen, Vinya, t- take good care. Honestly, it's been lovely having you on the show. You know, like, again, thank you so much for coming on and just kind of sharing, you know, digging deep into this kind of this area and, and sharing your, your skills and talents with her. Lovely talking to you. Lovely talking to you. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Like I say, just fun. Lovely guy to talk to, do you know what I mean? Very knowledgeable, do you know what I mean? A kind of, it's a little bit out of me depth, you know what I mean? But just lovely, major at ease. And like I say, I'm dying to kind of have another chat with Vinny as well. And I think he's, he said he's actually coming up the northeast of England, you know what I mean? The kind of, the centre of excellence. And hopefully we'll kind of, we'll meet up for a, a little um, beverage or two. But what I was, I was saying to Vinny, and actually I'm going to do this with every guest that we get on there now, because it seems like I want, I want so much more from these interviews. I mean, I get a right kick out of them, but I want, I want so much more from them. You know, when I kind of say goodbye, you know, there's always questions, you know, there's always, and I'm thinking that might be the case for, you know, a lot of listeners. So I asked Vinny, and Vinny was lovely. He's given us a load of the kind of documents, do you know what I mean? And these are the kind of documents that he'll hand out to government, to kind of aid agencies and everything like that. Now, I've get getting one, and if you come over to the front of the website, just click on, and we'll get the kind of the, the PDF documents there for the Hexayurt. And like I say, it is fascinating, do you know what I mean? What it's kind of, how it's laid out, how it, yes, you know, when you talk about it, it's just a kind of, you know, a hexagon shed almost, but... When you get the document, you can see the kind of work and you can see, you know, this is like 
this is what you get given. You know, governments will get given when you're kind of going through these kind of crises and that. And again, if anyone just drops us an email, Starship's over, Vinny's give us a, a load of other documentation, which is just fascinating. So you can do it straight from your phone. I've actually tested this there now. If you go straight to your phone there now, into the show notes, the first link will be, you know, the freebie. It'll say, get Vinay Gupta, Hexagirt, and, you know, make sure you survive. You can click that. It'll take you onto my newsletter, and you'll just be able to download it. And you're into the newsletter, which is an awesome, you know, event anyways. But you get this PDF, and like I say, it's fascinating. And I want to do this with everyone. During next week, I'm talking to a gentleman called Seth who is one of the directors of the SETI Institute. And Seth very kindly, you know, give us some documentation as well. So we're going to do this every week where you can kind of just get something. And if you're already on the newsletter, don't, don't worry, because you'll just still get this thing. You'll not kind of be added, 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 added. Do you know what I mean? I don't know how that kind of technology works, but you won't be. There you go. You just, you'll not get like 2,500 emails. So grab grab it now on your phone if you're looking there. Check, look at man, you can check it there now. Check the show notes, click it, sign in, get your not sign in, get your thing, put your email in your name, and you'll get this. What we're talking about the hex of year because it is fascinating to be quite honest. And I loved talking to Vinny. You know what I mean? Like I say, hopefully we can do this all over again. Hopefully I'll get him a get him a pint of lager, proper northern lager, another <laughs> southern shandy drinking warm stuff. So, next up is The Main Fiction, and it is Quarantine Summer by Rebecca Birch, which was originally published in Perillion Magazine. I hope I've pronounced that right. Rebecca Birch is a science fiction and fantasy writer based in Seattle, Washington, where she lives with her husband and teenage son. (laughs) Rebecca, get him out of bed and get him hoovering and doing the dishes. If he's anything like our two... Man, it's great. it's driving me mad lately. It's just like it really is this like uh, 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 uh. that's not a that's not a kind of exaggeration. That's the we almost become Neanderthal like. You know what I mean? Daughter and son just like uh, 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 uh. <laughs> it's driving me mad, man, lately. She doesn't love coffee, mm, but does spend time writing at Starbucks. She's a classically trained soprano, holds a deputy black belt in Taekwondo and enjoys spending time in the company of trees. Her fiction has appeared in markets including Nature, Cricket and Flash Fiction Online. And she's been a finalist for the Writers of the Future contest. Now this story is narrated by Tim Maoni. Tim is one of the chosen few maintaining vigilant watch over a genie in a bottle, keeping its pent-up fury controlled. This chosen watch splits atoms and brings light and wondrous things to the masses. He's honed these skills for 20 years beneath the sea in Octopus's garden and in a labyrinth of coral caves on five fast-attack submarines in the U.S. Navy. After escaping David Jones' locker, he continues in a teaching capacity. When not protecting humanity, he is an internet minstrel that lives the illusion that somebody needs him to play. His travels have taken him to four of the seven continents, and his wanderlust compels him to continue travelling until he has been to them all. Armed with an insatiable curiosity, he lives life in a continual state of wonder and amazement at the marvels of this world holds. 
Tim, you've got a Tim cracking little voice there, so well done. And a big thank you to Tim. Good supporter of the show there. Huge supporter of the show, Tim. And he raised my glass, sir. Thank you so much. And I have an idea, Tim, which I may just drop you an email. You never know. <laughs> so, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Quarantine Summer by Rebecca Birch. Hunter ducked out the door of the Road's End Motel. He wanted to slam it shut behind him, but held himself back. No matter how much the refugee kids got on his nerves, he tried not to scare them by showing them the anger simmering under his confident mask. The late summer night was humid, tinged with the stench of corpses, but outdoors a breath of wind stirred the thick air. Hunter wrinkled his nose and rubbed his stubbled chin. No matter how many bodies he buried, the kids still found more in their scouting rounds. It couldn't last forever. Soon there'd be nothing left to bury but bones. His fingers tapped restlessly on his thigh. He needed a cigarette. The pack was in his back pocket, along with a lighter, but he resisted the nicotine's whispered temptation. There was no telling if he'd ever find another one. His gaze flashed skyward. The stars were blurred blotches through the shimmering quarantine shield. A gibbous moon illuminated the empty street. The corner store sat dark the panes of its smashed-in windows glinting on their sharp edges. The pack in Hunter's pocket had been the last one in the store, and he didn't want to leave the kids alone long enough to trek to the grocery closer to the town's center. The next food run would be soon enough, if he didn't tear his hair out first. Hunter's head hurt, a persistent dull throb that radiated down through his neck and into his arms. He rolled his shoulders, trying to ease the ache. The door squealed open, and Asha stuck her head out the candle in her hand casting dancing shadows over her face. Fifteen years old, just seven years younger than himself, and her eyes were already sunken, her cheeks hollow. She looked like she hadn't slept in months and was close enough to True to make no never mind. Her long blonde hair hung lank and lifeless. Hunter, she peered into the darkness, her shoulders hunched towards her ears. Maggie's got the night terrors again. I tried to get her back to bed, but she won't close her eyes until she sees you. Hunter folded his arms across his chest, the worn fabric of his fitted undershirt catching in the hairs on the back of his forearms. Ten minutes he'd asked for. Ten minutes of peace. He glared down at Asha until she ducked her head and looked away. I'm sorry, she said, a tremor in her voice, but she was crying so loud I thought she'd wake up the rest. Wasn't till I told her I'd get you that she quieted. An owl hooted in the distance and the first few fallen leaves blew down the street with a brittle swish. Hunter's chest tightened, and he felt the back of his neck flush. He'd frightened Asha again. It was hard to remember that she was a child just as much as the little ones. The oldest girl. She'd slipped into the role of foster mother to the patchwork brood without complaint. Steady, quiet, uncomplaining Asha, so different from his own mother. He'd have traded them in a second when he was a boy. It wasn't Asha's fault he was left alone to guard this fragile remnant of Myrtle Creek. He forced the corners of his lips to smile, although he knew it didn't reach his eyes. It's fine, he said. I was done out here. Tell Maggie I'll be right there. Asha nodded and vanished, leaving him in the dark again. Hunter took three long, slow breaths. With each exhalation, he tried to visualize his vices leaving his body. Anger. Guilt. Fear. The clenched muscles at the base of his neck softened until he thought he could face Maggie without frightening her worse than the night terrors. 
Before closing the motel door behind him, Hunter swept one last glance down the street. Nothing moving. No sounds out of place. He shut the door, flipped the deadbolt, and slid the chain lock into place. Hunter checked to be sure his gun was secure in its holster, then headed down the hall to find Maggie. The next morning at breakfast, Hunter surveyed his charges. A baker's dozen of them, ranging in age from little Maggie, just shy of three years old, up to Michael, a few months older than Asha. Despite being oldest and almost as tall as Hunter, Michael still looked like a kid. The pale hint of a mustache bloomed on his upper lip beneath his bright mop of red hair, but his body was still thin, his shoulders narrow. He walked around the tables in the motel's continental breakfast room, distributing granola bars to the little ones, his gaze seeking out Hunter like he was checking to make sure Hunter was noticing him. Catching Michael's eyes, Hunter inclined his head. The boy pulled his shoulders back and puffed out his chest. Hunter's bite of granola bar tasted like chalk. He forced it down past the constriction in his throat. How long could he keep up this charade of a family? Just because he was apparently the only person over 16 left alive in this thrice-damned city didn't make him a leader, a mentor, a father. Hunter's headache flared. He pushed away from the table, startling little Maggie who dropped her bar on the floor. He had to get away, and he needed a smoke. Asha, how are the supplies holding up? Asha glanced over from the sink in the attached kitchenette where she was scrubbing yesterday's plastic glasses. She'd still been awake when Hunter had finally gotten Maggie back into her bed and turned in for the night himself. He wasn't sure how she was still standing. Granola bars are almost gone, she said. They're still jerky in tuna cans, but the dried fruit won't last two more days. Hunter nodded. Good. I'm going to walk into town today, then, he said. Michael, get the pack for me. Can I make the food run this time? No. A flush slid up Michael's face, highlighting his freckles. A muscle twitched on the side of his jaw. I need you to stay and guard the kids, Hunter said. You have the gun I gave you? Remember how it works? Michael muttered and vanished down the hallway, ratty sneakers scuffing over the rust-colored industrial carpet. Hunter scanned the rest of the room. The kids stared up at him. Maggie nibbled on her index finger. The rest of you, stay inside today, he said. Listen to Michael and Asha. They're in charge. Asha wiped the last glass and set it down with a hollow thunk. Michael reappeared with the pack and the extra gun. He handed the pack to Hunter without looking at him. Anybody you don't know comes here? You keep them out till I get back, Hunter said. If they try to get inside, shoot them. It sounded harsh, he knew. But in the months since the quarantine, the survivors had grown desperate and dangerous. I know what to do, Hunter. Michael's gaze could have bored a hole in the floor. I'm not a kid anymore. It wasn't worth the breath to argue. Hunter had to get out, away from all those trusting eyes. I should be back in three hours, but if I don't come back, don't come looking for me. Hunter left them to their meal and headed for the door, but the sound of padding feet following him brought him up short at the door. I told you no, Michael, he said. You're not going. I'm not Michael, said Asha. Hunter turned around and leaned up against the door. She still held a dish rag in one hand. At some point, she tried to braid her hair, but with no hair ties, it had disintegrated into a loose mess of strands. Her skin was even paler than usual, and her hands trembled. You look like hell, Hunter said. Asha nibbled on her lower lip and wrapped her fingers tighter around the dish rag. 
Maggie's not the only one with night terrors. Her eyes looked bluer than Hunter had seen them before. Maybe the dark shadows under them accentuated the color. His lips twitched. Why didn't you say something before? A sad laugh escaped her lips. What's the point? Nothing you can do, is there? She looked down at her hands. It helps, though, knowing you're here. Her jaw snapped shut, and she looked back up, catching and holding his gaze. She'd never done that before. Come back to us, Hunter. I can't do this alone. Of course he was coming back, wasn't he? He just had to get out for a little while. No responsibilities. No playing a part that made him a fraud. Just himself and his gun, and his pack of cigarettes, and a world the size of a quarantine shield. No thought of setting out on his own, of choosing his own path, of starting fresh, alone, unfettered, free. Hunter's chest constricted with a wave of longing. He tightened his grip on the pack handles. Get some sleep, he said, before you keel over in front of the kids. He turned away before he could see Asha's expression. He dodged the question, and she was smart enough to know it. He couldn't stand to see fear, or worse, disappointment, in her eyes. He shut the door and waited until he heard the lock slide into place, then turned west towards town. The walk to the grocery only took Hunter an hour. He pulled out his gun before peering into the dim interior. The quarantine shield had shut down the power grid when it deployed, and he'd finally started getting used to shadows. Hunter slipped inside. A strong, sickly smell of rot overwhelmed him. He choked and switched to breathing through his mouth. It helped, but he could swear he still tasted the residual reek on his tongue. He waited, unmoving, and listened for any sound. After a minute of nothing, he crept into the aisles. The place had already been raided. Strewn packages peppered the linoleum. A shelf lay on its side in a puddle of dried ketchup, mustard, and a molding sludge Hunter couldn't identify. A few packs of breakfast bars, some soup cans, chicken broth and beef consomme, and three canisters of raisins were all he could find that wasn't rotten. He shoved them into the pack and headed towards the front. There had to be cigarettes, at least. One more pack. Then he'd let himself smoke one. One long drag of peace. The locked glass doors of the cigarette display lay in shards. Nothing. Not one damn pack. Not even those girly filtered menthol travesties. Hunter kicked the shelf, knocking loose the last fragments of glass. They crashed to the ground and shattered. A match hissed to life behind him, and someone sucked in a puff. Looking for these? Hunter spun in a low crouch, gun cocked and ready, his heart thudding. How had he missed the sound of someone breathing nearby? The smoke seeped into his lungs and his gut twisted with longing. Get into the light where I can see you, he said. The footsteps moved towards the pool of light seeping in through the broken windows and Hunter kept the weapon trained towards their source until a familiar red mop of hair came into clarity. Michael inhaled a long draw and blew it out the corner of his mouth. Hunter's vision went a hazy red. He lunged forward and knocked the cigarette away. It fell to the linoleum, smoldering lazily. It was all he could do not to smash his fist into Michael's freckled face. What the? He bit down on the curse word before it could leave his lips. He didn't dare speak. His limbs trembled with repressed rage. If Michael was here with the extra gun hanging at his waist, who was watching out for the children? Asha, alone and unarmed? I told you I'm not a kid, Michael said. And see, I got here before you. Watched you searching for food I already nabbed. Michael pulled a second knapsack from his shoulders and held it out. The sides bulged. I got the last cigarettes. 
He took a step closer. You want one? Ask me nicely. Hunter lunged forward and caught Michael by his shirt collar, yanking him close, their noses almost touching. He pressed the gun to the boy's temple. You want to be a big man, do you? Yeah, you're a big man, leaving a bunch of kids unprotected so you can play macho games. Think you can handle life on your own? Fine. You're such a man. You don't need me, do you? You don't need anybody. Michael blanched and licked his lips. Hey, hey, man, you're hurting me. Months of fear pent up behind a facade of confidence threatened to tear away Hunter's control. His knuckles whitened around the gun's handle. Maybe Asha was right. Maybe he had been planning to bolt, to take a shot at his freedom. But thinking of the twelve kids back at the road's end, he knew he couldn't do it. Despite his frustration at being forced into the protector role for a herd of wide-eyed kids, they were his frustrations now. Give me your weapon, Hunter said through gritted teeth. Listen, Hunter, now! Michael reached slowly for the holster's buckle, fumbled with it. Hunter's jaw throbbed. At last, Michael managed to undo the holster. He took it off and offered it in an outstretched hand. Hunter grabbed the holster and shoved Michael backwards. The boy staggered but caught his balance before landing in the pile of broken glass. The pack, too, Hunter said. Michael tossed it at Hunter's feet. Hunter bent to retrieve it without looking away from Michael or letting his weapon waver. The pack's weight told him it held much more than his own did. Get out of my sight, Hunter said, till you learn what it really means to be a man. You gonna leave me to starve? Michael's voice rose towards panic. With a dismissive shrug, Hunter tossed his own pack at Michael. I've got more mouths to feed, so I'm taking yours. You can make do with the rest, he gestured with the gun. Out. After a few hesitating steps, Michael turned tail and bolted, disappearing between the abandoned cars. Hunter belted on the second holster, shouldered the pack, and turned back towards the road's end. His lungs itched and a nervous tickle fluttered in his heart. The survivors were wily, and it wouldn't surprise him if they'd been watching a motel, waiting for an opportune moment. He'd gotten his kids set up real good. They were a tempting target. The perpetual headache intensified. Hunter lengthened his stride, trotting down the street. The late morning sun beat down and a sheen of perspiration coated his skin. He kept himself in shape, doing push-ups, sit-ups, chin-ups, any kind of ups a soul could think of. So his muscles were strong, and he'd have thought this run would be easy, even weighted down by the supplies. But his lungs quickly began to burn. An unusual flash of color up ahead caught his attention. Someone hiding in the shrubs, their blue t-shirt a poor excuse for camouflage. Hunter slowed and pulled out one of the guns. He walked down the center of the street. There was no use hiding. By the time he spotted the person in the bushes, they'd have seen him long ago. When he neared, a small body burst out and ran towards him, shouting his name. He lowered the gun. Bryce, one of his own, about ten years old if Hunter remembered right. Something dark stained the blue shirt. Hunter's eyes narrowed. Blood. He looked towards the boy and dropped to his knees in front of him. What happened, Bryce? Are you hurt? Tears ran down the boy's face, soaking into the neck of his shirt. I'm fine, Hunter, he gasped. But they shot Maggie. She was crying too much. I tried to stop the blood. I tried. Hunter shoved the gun back into its holster and took the boy by the shoulders. What about the others? How did you get away? Bryce shook his head and wiped at the trail of tears. I don't know about the rest. They were still okay when I left. I said I had to clean up. Then I jumped out the restroom window and came to find you. But I didn't know the way, so I hid and waited. Hunter squeezed his shoulders. You did real good, Bryce. 
Real good. The boy sniffled and tried to stifle his sobs. Maggie's dead. Hunter nodded, but he couldn't think about it now. That little ragdoll girl who couldn't sleep without him near, who trusted him to keep her safe. If he let himself dwell on it, he'd freeze, locked up in guilt. Let's get back there before anything happens to the rest, he said. Bryce trailed Hunter wordlessly off the road into the back alleys. Hunter kept to a walk to allow the boy to keep up, but despite the slower pace, his lungs still burned. He coughed. Something warm and wet hit the back of his teeth. The taste of blood coated his tongue, and for an instant he was a boy again, cowering beneath his father's fist while his mother turned a blind eye, focusing on Jerry Springer, or her soaps, or People's Court. Hunter brought his fingers to his lips and wiped them. They came away red. Like all the others, every last adult and most of the kids, the plague snuck up quietly, headaches, body aches, then ambushed its victims with bloody coughs, fever, delirium, and agony, and a headlong rush toward the final release of death. Another cough threatened. Hunter smothered it. His heart raced. Numbness shot down his fingers. After so long he thought he'd escaped, that he was somehow immune. Not now. Lord, not now. Now he finally had a purpose. You okay, Hunter? Bryce asked in his high-pitched little boy voice. Hunter forced a smile. Just breathe some dust, kid. They came up on the road's end from the rear. Hunter brought them to a halt behind a laurel bush and he peered out. He couldn't see anyone on lookout, but he wouldn't risk bringing Bryce any closer. How many were there? He whispered. Four. I think the oldest was maybe fourteen. The others were just a little bigger than me. They had two guns that I saw. Good job keeping your head enough to look. I want you to stay here. He slipped out of the backpack and set it on the ground. If I can, I'm going to send the kids out the back. You gather them and keep them out of sight and quiet. Can you do that? Yes, sir. You don't need to call me, sir. That's what I called my daddy. And you're my daddy now, aren't you? Hunter didn't trust himself to speak. He just clapped the boy on the shoulder and blinked away something suspiciously close to tears. Be careful, Bryce whispered. Crouching low, Hunter dashed across the alleyway into the shade at the back of the motel. He crept along the paneled wall until he reached the restroom in its open window. It was a long way up, a big drop for a little boy. Hunter heard muffled voices, but nothing just inside the window. He stretched up and curled his hands over the window frame. All those chin-ups hadn't been for nothing. He levered himself up and over easily, dropping down on flexed legs. Where would they be? He tried to put himself into their place. A pack of feral kids willing to kill a toddler for crying. What drove them? Starvation, probably. The kitchen, then. They'd secure the food. Where were his kids? Where was Asha? His thoughts turned again to Michael, who'd left them alone, defenseless. Michael had brought them to this. His fault Maggie was dead. But a small voice Hunter couldn't quite silence hounded him. He'd been a thought away from leaving himself, from taking his chances with the shield. Was he any better? He couldn't honestly say he was. He caught a glimpse of himself in the mirror. Young. Strong. The tight shirt accentuated his muscles. He looked like he had it together. But his lungs itched like all the guilt and fear he buried under his hard exterior wanted to burn through from the inside out. An uncontrollable cough spasmed through him and he caught the edge of the sink, holding himself upright until it was over. He spat out the bloody sputum. So much for stealth. He turned the spigot and watched the water rinse away the evidence of his weakness. The disease moved fast. He'd watched it take so many, unable to do a thing to so much as ease their passing. 
a containment breach at the government laboratory at the edge of town, biological warfare unleashed on its own country, ground zero. The quarantine shield protected the outside world. What about the people inside? Did the government even care about them? Or were they an acceptable price in the development of their new weaponry? It didn't matter. All that mattered was the kids. Hunter straightened and ran his hands through his short brown hair. He had to act now, before the disease left him unable to, before any more children died. He pulled out a gun and opened the restroom door. In the hallway, the voices were clearer. Several down towards the kitchen and breakfast room, and a few down the wing of motel rooms the kids slept in. A shriek from the bedroom sent him running that direction. Doors stood ajar, the rooms empty, save for the last room on the right. He smashed it open with a sharp side kick and barreled through, gun leveled. Asha stood in the corner, the three little girls cowering behind her, while one strange boy pointed a weapon at them. The boy spun at the crash of the door, swinging his gun around. He was hardly bigger than Bryce, his face still rounded with youth, with wide blue eyes. Hunter hesitated. He'd shot others since the shield, but they'd been older, almost men. This felt wrong, despite the gun trained on him. Asha grabbed the remote control off a nearby shelf and smashed it onto the boy's head with all her strength. The blue-eyed boy crumpled. Asha swayed and grabbed the wall. Hunter crossed the room in a few strides, catching her by the upper arm. Her eyes were glazed and she trembled like a reed in the wind. Asha! When she didn't respond, he shook her roughly. Asha! She blinked up at him and recognition slipped into her gaze. You came back. I came back, he agreed. Can you stand? Asha nodded. Hunter let go of her arm. Get his weapon. Help the girls tie him up, then stay here. If anyone besides me comes through that door, point the gun and pull the trigger. I don't know if I can. Hunter speared her with a glance. I do. He did a quick count. Where are the boys? They kept them in the breakfast room. Except Bryce. I don't know what happened to him. He's safe. Asha squeezed her eyes shut. Thank God. The boy on the floor moaned. Hurry and tie him up, Hunter said. I'm going for the boys. Hunter didn't wait to be sure she followed his directions. He trusted Asha more than he trusted himself. On silent feet, he slipped down the hallway. Where there had been voices before, now there was nothing. That wasn't normal for his boys. Hunter's heart beat faster. The burning in his lungs flared. He swallowed hard and tried not to think about the desperate need to cough. Sweat soaked into his shirt. A buzzing filled his ears, and his legs felt like hot tar. Hunter swayed on his feet, catching himself against the wall. He rested there for a moment, trying to catch his breath, but he couldn't wait. A hard lump formed in his throat, but it wasn't from fear. It hurt to swallow, hurt to draw air past the swollen glands. He forced himself upright and down the hallway until he stood outside the closed breakfast room door. His vision swam, and there were two doorknobs, then three, then five. Shaking his head brought the knob back into focus, and Hunter grasped it before it could multiply again. He yanked open the door. His boy stood in a cluster on the far side of the room by the stack of tuna cans. Hunter took a step inside. Look out! One of the boys shouted. Too late. Something hard hit the back of Hunter's knees, and he fell sprawling onto the floor. He tried to rise, but someone had a foot on his back. Two someones. The sound of a gun being cocked echoed through his head, far louder than it had any right to be. Well now, look what we bagged, said a voice Hunter didn't recognize. A grown-up. Didn't think there were any of you left. Let him go, called one of his boys. The gun cracked, so loud Hunter thought his skull would explode. You keep your mouth shut, or next time that'll be your head, said the boy with the gun. 
Hunter's face was pressed into something cool and sticky. It smelled like iron. Blood, he realized. His vision swam, then focused on a small form lying just in front of him. Short, blonde curls. Pink sundress with strawberries on it. Maggie, he groaned. I killed her because she was annoying me. There was a sneer in the voice. You're starting to annoy me too, big man. A dark shadow lunged past Hunter, slamming into the boy with the gun. Two bodies hit the ground beside him, just missing Maggie. You think a gun makes you a man? Came a new voice. It sounded like Michael. That was impossible. Hunter had sent him away. He wouldn't have come back. Would he? You think killing babies makes you a man? Well, you're wrong. Red hair? Freckles? He had control of the gun now. Had it pointed at the strange boy's face. Where were the other two? Let me go, said the pin boy. Come on, let me up. You don't deserve to live. Michael's voice was as cold and relentless as glacier ice. Beg for mercy, punk. Hunter tried to speak, to intervene, but only managed a wheezing croak. His vision tunneled. Blackness crept in on all sides. Not now. Lord, not now. His heart stuttered. Nothingness. A paroxysm of coughing racked Hunter, jolting him into consciousness. His knees curled towards his chest, and he clung to the ground until it passed. Sweat drenched his clothes. His joints throbbed, and the lump in his throat felt like someone was stabbing him. Something cold and wet pressed against the back of his neck. Hunter? Asha's voice. So quiet. Hunter, can you hear me? With a groan, he rolled onto his back. She knelt over him, worrying her lower lip with her perfect white teeth. Her brows knit close over her eyes, shining with unshed tears. The kids, he asked, forcing the words past his constricted throat. Asha wiped her wet dish rag over his forehead. They're safe. Michael shot the boy who killed Maggie, but not the other three. Just sent them back out into the city. He went all cold and shaky for a while after, but I think he's all right now. Hunter nodded. The motion sent shooting pains through his skull. You shouldn't be touching me. I sent the others away, Asha said. Although if we're going to catch this thing, it's probably too late already. But I'm not leaving you to die alone. You came back. You didn't have to, and I know you didn't want to, but you did. Hunter's tongue darted over his lips. First I didn't want to, but I learned better. You kids finally gave me something to live for. He chuckled, a rasping, painful sound. Just in time before I die. Some people survive, Asha said, running her fingers through his hair. It kindled a memory he'd long forgotten, of when his mother used to do the same, before his father broke her spirit. He closed his eyes and let himself enjoy the sensation. Only kids lived, he said after a moment. Nobody as old as me. You're strong. Fight it. Asha's voice hitched. And when Hunter opened his eyes, he found tears sliding down her face, her chin trembling. He wanted to wipe the tears away, but there was no strength left in him. He couldn't even lift his hand. Don't think I can. Please, Hunter, I can't do this alone. When did Asha's pale skin and sunken cheeks become beautiful? He blinked up at her. Shivers lanced through him. You're not alone now. Michael's with you. He won't abandon you again. He's not you. He can never be you. Her face swam and blurred. Hunter's breath seared his lungs. Each gasp took all his strength. His pulse raced, faltered, raced again. Tremors shook his body. He stared up at Asha. All that was left was her blue, blue eyes. I'm scared. Hunter felt his torso being lifted, although where she found the strength he couldn't say. 
Then her thin arms wrapped him close against her chest. Her fingers slid through his hair and she rocked him like a baby. It's okay, Hunter, she crooned. I've got you. I won't let go. And she didn't. Not even when his sight vanished. When sounds dimmed until all that was left was her voice. When nothing remained but her arms and her soft, soft fingers. A mother's fingers. The best mother in the world. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Rebecca. Rebecca, thank you so much. Honestly, thank you so much indeed. It's lovely. And Tim, what can I say there? Big hugs, uh, big hugs all around. Thank you so much. So that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Like I say, a few things. Don't forget the freebie from Vinny Gupta. Fantastic. Just go on there, click that. You'll get a little freebie off us, a little thank you. Don't forget to become a patron. That is so important. Don't forget to take our poll. That is so important. Don't forget the submissions desk. Join up there. Don't forget to get a story sent in. But read the, read, the, read the guidelines first. There you go. And don't forget everything on the newsletter. You can sign up to the newsletter. Man, so much there. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly am, man. I get a blast. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.